Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Again, here we go. Swirl, sniff, sip, spit. While you drink, don't forget this tasting test. Welcome to this special edition where we talk wines and the Giro d'Italia. We held an exceptional clubhouse room dedicated to Giro d'Italia, but it was not recorded. I know, I know, bummer. But anyways, we thought about sharing some notes about the stages of the Giro, written and read by Mark Millen, a food, wine and travel writer and the author of numerous books as well as magazine articles published on both sides of the Atlantic. Since these bikers will also go through Verona, the city of Vinitaly, there will be more special episodes to come. Stay tuned! Sip, sniff. While you drink, don't forget these tasting tips. We are now more than halfway through this year's Giro d'Italia. There has been drama, spills, attacks, glory, and both glorious and ignominious failure. And there is more. So much more still to come. I'm enjoying every minute, and I'm enjoying all the wines encountered along the way. Here are my reports for stages 11, 12, and 13. Stage 11. Perugia to Montalcino. The Brunello di Montalcino wine stage. 162 kilometers. Teamwork. That is what it takes to win the Giro. That is what it takes to win just a single stage. And there was a masterclass on display on Tuesday, the day before yesterday's well-earned rest day, when every member of Team Bora Hansgrohe worked incredibly hard to help Peter Sagan to a famous victory on stage 11. Bora Hansgrove took control on the rolling hills of Lazio, leading up to the only categorized climb of the day, relentlessly setting an uncomfortable pace that some of the bigger and more powerful sprinting specialists simply found too hard to maintain. Tim Merlier, the Maliacci Clamino, fell back. Giacomo Nizzolo struggled to stay in touch. Dylan Grunewagen and others who were favored to contest the stage, if allowed to reach the final kilometers still in touch, all dropped away. Sagan was at his limit too, but his teammates knew just how hard he could be pushed and still have enough left in the tank to contest the final sprint. Bora Hansgrove continued to work tirelessly and drove the peloton on to Foligno at a tempo that was far too high for anyone else to contemplate breaking away. It was the perfect strategy. As the bunch entered the streets of Foligno, negotiated roundabouts, and then a sharp right-hander, Sagan was pretty much in the perfect position to launch his final attack. But having been delivered to the start of the final sprint by your team is one thing. He still had to deliver the goods, and he did so in real style, exploding into an extraordinary display of power to outpace Fernando Gaviria and Davide Cimolai, not only to take the stage win, but also to ride himself into the Malia Ciclamino. A very impressive day's work and teamwork. Bravo, Peter Sagan. Bravo, teen Bora Hansgrohe. Today, the Giro resumes, and it's a reminder of why it is the greatest cycling race in the world. For a start, for those of us who love both cycling and wine, 
It is this year's designated wine stage in honor of Brunello di Montalcino. The wine stage has been a regular feature of the Giro for some years now, a reminder that wine lies at the heart of Italian life and landscape alike. Stage routes are rarely far from the hills, and as we have already seen, the Giro spends much of its time cycling through beautiful wine country. This, of course, gives us all the excuse at the end of an exhausting armchair day to relax over an appropriate glass or two. Today's stage, which runs from Perugia to Montalcino, is no exception, but with a dastardly twist. There will be four sections totaling 35 kilometers that will be over Strade Bianche, unpaved roads and farm tracks up and down some of the steepest hills in the Crete Senesi and the wine hills of Montalcino. The last time the Giro came to Montalcino in its white roads was in 2010, a stage that has gone down in Giro legend. It had been pouring rain for days, and the roads, riders, and bicycles arrived at the finish unrecognizable almost completely covered in the fine clay mud of the Crete. Riding in such rugged and testing conditions demands other skills than normally required on the road, and it requires a different sort of teamwork too. Should a team leader puncture, as will no doubt happen to someone today, a domestique might have to lend him his wheel or his bike until the support vehicle can arrive. The support vehicles will need to try and stay as close to their riders as they can, adding to the dust or mud and overall chaos of it all. As always, teamwork, as well as individual skill and heart, will be what wins the day. But the end of it all, there will be wine, glorious wine, and not any old wine. Brunello di Montalcino, DOCG, one of the great wines of Italy and the world. I'm certainly looking forward to relaxing over a large calice of this prestigious vintage. But which Brunello? I'm going to opt for a special wine made by a good friend, Donatella Cinelli Colombini. Brunello di Montalcino Prime Donne. Donatella's winery, Casato Prime Donne, is staffed entirely by women and is a flagship for equal opportunities for women in the world of wine. The wine itself is created and assembled by a team of selected female tasters, including international experts and MWs who help with decisions such as how long to age it in barrel. Donatella's aim is to create an old-style Brunello, elegant with a strong territorial imprint, a wine that can be cellared for a long time. The whole team at Casato Prime Donne worked tirelessly to achieve this end. Teamwork and Cycling Teamwork and winemaking are often the keys to success. Let's enjoy today's wine stage. The courage, skill, and determination of the cyclist. The beauty and splendor of the Montalcino countryside, ranging from lush vineyards to the bare, white hills of the Crete Senesi. At the end of it all, we'll raise a glass to the cyclists, whose efforts are bringing us to such wonderful places, and also to the winemakers, who are refreshing and astonishing us all along the way. Bravi e salute! Stage 12. Siena to Bagno di Romagna, 212 kilometers. Stage 11, the Brunello di Montalcino wine stage, presented the cyclists with an extreme test of man, machine, and team. On the bare, dusty, gravel stretches of Strade Bianche, 
that passed through Montalcino's wine country, a small group managed to build a decent lead, and Mauro Schmidt, just 21 years old, of Team Cubeca Asos, eventually powered away from his fellow escapee, Alessandro Corvi, to ride to a debut Giro d'Italia stage win on the narrow streets of Montalcino, a notable achievement to add to his cycling palmares, one that will certainly always be remembered and cherished. Meanwhile, the real race was taking place amongst the GC contenders some five minutes back. Once again, Team Ineos Grenadiers showed its strength, confidence and aggression by riding not just to protect the Maglia Rosa, Egon Bernal, but to make his rival suffer, setting a fast and uncomfortable tempo on the loose and dry roads. Lost in a cloud of choking, white dust behind, some just couldn't keep up. The biggest loser on the day was Remco Evenepoel of Team De Koinek Quickstep, who clearly didn't relish riding in the dirt at pace, and especially descending on the loose and dangerous gravel. His head dropped. He argued with his team car, and to add insult to injury, his former co-leader and now domestique, Joao Alameda, inexplicably went on ahead rather than dropping back to assist his team leader, leaving young Evenepoel all alone in a world of utter pain and misery. Having started the day just 14 seconds behind Bernal, he eventually rolled in some 2 minutes and 22 minutes behind the Maglia Rosa. Not an insurmountable deficit by any means, and the young Belgian will surely have better days to come, just as Bernal will have his bad moments. But for now, Bernal is the man to beat. He was simply majestic and in a total class of his own, blowing away his rivals on the final climb and in the process gaining precious time on them all. Another very satisfying day's work. There is certainly still a very long way to go, but I hope that Bernal and his Ineos teammates were able to enjoy victory in the Brunello di Montalcino wine stage with perhaps at least a sip or two of this great wine. They certainly deserved it. Stage 12 at 212 kilometers and with 3,700 meters of climbing will be another long and very hard day as the Giro moves on relentlessly, leaving Tuscany after just a day, but what a day, to cross the Apennines and back into the high mountains of Romagna. Starting in Siena, the route passes directly through the very heart of Chianti Classico visiting along the way the important wine communes of Castellina in Chianti, Panzano in Chianti, Greve in Chianti, Strade in Chianti. As we travel along the Via Chiantigiana on a bike or in our minds, feeling the undulations of the terrain and enjoying vistas of vine-covered slopes all around us, it's hard to believe that this single-minded vinescape was not always like this. The riders then passed through Florence, the great city of the Renaissance, which became the second capital of Italy between 1865 and 1870. Then it's to the north and east, towards the mountains, first passing through Ponte Sieve, always an important centre for Chianti wine, and then by two more important wine zones, Chianti Rufina and the tiny wine enclave of Pomino. The latter, together with Chianti and Carmignano, was cited in 1760 when it was included in Cosimo III de' Medici's Grand Ducal Decree, Il Bando. My wine choice for today, therefore, is Pomino Rosso, 
produced at the Castello Pomino by the Marchese di Frescobaldi, aristocratic wine growers since 1300. Though this wine used to be made from Sangiovese blended with Pinot Nero and Merlot, for some years now it has been made entirely from Pinot Nero in Purezza, vinified in oak, conical trunk vats, and then aged for 15 months in French oak barrique, the wine that results is elegant, rather soft, delicate, and beautifully balanced. French grape varieties were first brought back to Pomino in 1855 by a Frescobaldi ancestor, and they have clearly adapted well to their home in these high wine hills. Another reason for choosing this wine is that Castello Pomino is part of the social history of Tuscany. For centuries, the wine farms of Tuscany, as well as other parts of central Italy, were worked by mezzadri, sharecropping tenant farmers who would give half their produce to the padrone, the aristocratic landowner, and keep half for themselves. It is incredible to think that this medieval system of farming was only outlawed in 1964 and not abolished entirely until 1982. At Pomino, you can still see how the mezzadria worked in practice, for the old sharecroppers' open-top fermentation vats are still in place, together with the small wooden barrels called barile that were used to measure out the wine once it was made in order to distribute the shares to the tenant farmers. Today, as we pass through the beautiful manicured vineyards of Chianti Classico, Chianti Rufina and Pomino, perhaps stopping to visit a modern architect-designed wine cellar, we are reminded of how recent the renaissance of Italian wine really is. Only 50 years ago, intensive monoculture hardly existed, and the landscape itself cultivated by the so-called promiscuous method of mixed agriculture looked profoundly different to what it does today. The demise of the Mezzedria was a watershed moment in the development of modern Italian wine, certainly, and the wines are without doubt infinitely better for it. But there were losses too. Changes to livelihoods, to relationships with the land, ways of working and living that had existed for centuries and there were immense changes to a beautiful landscape that until relatively recently was not dissimilar to the background of a Renaissance painting. Once again I digress. We ride on into the high mountains with four testing categorized climbs, surely another day for an opportunistic breakaway, before the finish in Bagno di Romagna, just inside the border between Tuscany and Emilia-Romagna. Bagno di Romagna, a spa town in the high hills, has been famous for the healing properties of its thermal waters since Roman times. Those warm, sulfurous, healing waters will certainly be welcome this evening to soothe both tired legs and tired minds. That, and of course, a glass of wine, the best medicine of all. Stage 13 Ravenna to Verona, 198 kilometers. Yesterday was a good day for the Italians. On one of the longest stages, there are only four in this edition, the top 200 kilometers, an Italian breakaway, Andrea Vendrame, pedaled through the wine hills of the Chianti Classico, Rufina and Pomino, then climbed four whopping categorized mountains and descended like a madman to shake off his rivals and claim a fabulous stage win. 
Meanwhile, some twelve minutes back, the peloton was being controlled imperiously by the might of the Ineos grenadiers, all riding around Egon Bernal, the Malia Rosa, like a team of thuggish protective bodyguards. No one dared to upset the order or to challenge them, or so it seemed. But then, on the final, shorter, but painfully steep climb of the day, a brilliant surprise attack was launched by two Italians on the Trek Segafredo team. First, Giulio Ciccone put in a powerful dig, accelerating quickly away from the peloton. Ciccone, only 2.24 down on GC, was not someone who could be ignored, so the Ineos boys prepared to step it up. But before they could fully react, Vincenzo Nibali, Lo Squalo, the shark of Messina, who has won the Giro d'Italia twice, in 2013 and 2016, as well as the Tour de France and the Vuelta a España, and a revered national hero, set off after his compatriot, outpacing the whole Ineos Grenadiers to bridge to Ciccone and then go past him. Nibali managed to stay ahead of the chasing pack all the way to the summit of the climb. Then, on the dangerous descent, he showed his world-class bicycle handling skills by speeding down at the utter limit of safety, taking immense risks along the way. Gianni Moscon, one of the stalwart workhorses of Ineos Grenadiers, trying to follow Nibali's wheel, crashed at about 50 kilometers per hour, hitting the road hard, skidding out and bouncing around like a rag doll. Somehow managed to jump back on his apparently undamaged bike to complete the stage. Nibali's attack brought stage 12 to life. The mainly Italian crowds in Bagno di Romagna going crazy, cheering their hero as he held out against the chasing peloton. Two, in the end, gained, what, just a mere seven seconds on the Malia Rosa? Doesn't sound like much for all that risk and effort. And Nibali is still more than four minutes back on GC. But it was a stern reminder that this race is far from over. A statement of intent from Lo Squalo and the Trek Segarfredo team. An encouragement to other teams that Ineos Grenadiers might not have it all their own way in the testing days to come before the Giro winds up on the streets of Milan. Today's ride from Ravenna to Verona looks on paper an altogether more straightforward affair. For a start, it was one of the few flat stages remaining, an opportunity for most of the riders to stay safely in the bunch and to leave the finish to the sprinting teams to fight it out. The stage was devised in part to pay homage to Dante Alighieri, who passed away 700 years ago. Dante, a Florentine, became embroiled in the bitter conflict, a dominant feature of Italy in the Middle Ages, between Guelphs, supporters of the papacy, and Ghibellines, supporters of the Holy Roman Empire. Dante's family were staunch Guelphs, and they eventually triumphed in the city. But then the infighting became even more arcane as the Guelphs split into blacks and whites. Dante found himself on the losing side, had all his property and goods confiscated and was sent into perpetual exile on pain of death if we were ever to return. He was just 37 years old and never set foot in his beloved native city again. Thus began a peripatetic life, moving from city to city and taking hospitality with the noble families who would welcome and protect him. He eventually settled in Ravenna under the protection of the ruling 
Polenta family, where he completed the Divine Comedy. Dante died in Arena in 1321, and his tomb there has become a site of national pilgrimage. During his wanderings, Dante came to Verona on a number of occasions and always received the warm hospitality of the powerful Della Scala family, so the people of Verona also still feel an affectionate and direct connection with Italy's supreme poet. I expect today's stage across the broad Po Valley from Ravenna to Verona to be fast and furious, crossing the Adige into Verona and then a straight finish down Corso Porta Nuova, a stage that will definitely suit the powerhouses of the peloton. Watch out, those of you who are there. This will be a display of unbridled, testosterone-fueled might like the gladiatorial contests that once took place in the Roman arena just beyond the finish line. My wine for today is Possessione Rosso, made at the Casal de Ronchi estate of the Sarego Alighieri family at Gargagnago in the wine hills of Valpolicella. After Dante's death, his son Pietro purchased this estate outside of Verona in 1353. Since that time, for more than 650 years and 21 generations, Casal de Ronchi has remained in the hands of the direct descendants of Dante Alighieri. Vines, as well as cherries, two vital products of the Valpolicella, have been cultivated here ever since. The Serrego Alighieri estate's most famous and prestigious wines are Via Armaron, possibly the first Amarone della Valpolicella, and Casal de Ronchi Ricciotto della Valpolicella, a gently sweet vino da meditazione, a meditation wine that is perhaps the perfect partner to sip while reading the disturbing and hellish passages from the Inferno. Possessione Rosso is a humbler wine that honors the family's Tuscan roots, for it is made from a blend of Corvina, the great grape of Verona, and Sangiovese, the great grape of Tuscany. After fermentation, the wine ages in barrels made from the cherry wood of the estate. The wine itself displays an intense aroma of cherries, finishing with a characteristic almond aftertaste, a bittersweet reminder of Dante's enforced exile from his beloved Florence. Let's raise a glass of Possessione Rosso to today's gladiators as they go mano a mano on the streets of Verona this afternoon, and to Dante Alighieri, the father of the Italian language and literature. Sip, sip, while you drink, don't forget this tasting test.